Okay, this is Cody Cast, the Care of the Elderly podcast for debate, discussion, and analysis of issues related to geriatric and general medicine. Uh, I'm Mark Garside, and joining me for this Cody Cast are my fellow elderly medicine registrars, Peter Brock and Vicky Gibson. Hello. Good evening. Um, we're uh, we're going to start with the opening question in a minute, but uh, it's mainly so that I don't forget later on. I need to plug a couple of things. Uh, firstly, I mentioned it on the last episode, but uh, our survey for listeners is still open. Uh, we're looking for uh, feedback, comments, suggestions about how we do the podcast and what's useful and what's not so that we can improve it. Um, if you have about two minutes of your time, it's really brief. Uh, the survey is available on aeme.org.uk slash survey. Uh, and the other thing that we need to plug whilst it's topical is the uh, the conference uh, the geriatrics for juniors in uh, leeds in november uh 11th of november pete it's the 7th, the 7th. <laughs> <laughs> glad, you, glad, you, glad you glad you glad you pointed that out <laughs> okay saturday 7th of november um who wants to say something about the conference uh, I will. Uh, so it's a conference that's designed f- specifically for junior doctors, so uh, foundation doctors, core medical trainees. We've had final year medical students who've come along before and really enjoyed it as well. And um, it uh, covers a variety of to- topics in geriatrics, all designed to give you some some practical tips about um, looking after geriatrics patients on the ward. Uh, but there's also a number of sessions um, about preparing you for the steps of becoming a medical registrar. There's tips on career building as well. Um, and this year we've got a post competition. So all those audits and quality improvement projects that you've been doing um, over the years, um, if they're geared towards elderly patients, then you've got the opportunity to enter them into our poster competition and have them displayed on the day and potentially become one of our, our Coty champions as well. Um, so if you have a look on the uh, AME website, which is aeme.org.uk slash G4J15, um, then check out the conference programme and uh, I'm sure you'll be interested. And that will be a national post presentation then. That's right. Indeed. Great one for the CV. And only £40. Yes, great value for money and lots going on in the day, so it will be really great. And a chance to meet the three of us. What a bargain. Um, okay, so there you go. It turns out that the sponsor of today's show is ourselves yes. and our own conference. Okay, right. Um, I haven't even said what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about covering the elderly care wards uh, on call. That's the, the topic of today's show. But uh, as always, first, we're going to start off with our opening question, which uh, uh, this month is uh, about hospital radio. And we are asking, which songs would you like or not like to hear on hospital radio? Um, Pete, do you want to go first? Well, I've I've gone for something that you wouldn't want to hear on hospital radio, um, which I have which I have heard. It wasn't actually on hospital radio, but it was on a radio in the in the bay in an elderly care ward. It was Capital FM, and it was ju- it's just any blaring out electronic dance music. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you put that on for a sustained period at ten a.m. in the morning, it's going to make you feel ill. Um, and that's what um, for for months while I worked on this ward. When I was uh, an F1, uh, the juniors, the uh, patients had to suffer. Um, so that would be would be my tip: would be to try and avoid anything with more than really sixty beats per minute. If you don't want, if you don't want it to be faster than their their heart rate, all right, you want it to keep keep it as low as possible. I think smooth radio is the way forward. Yeah, it chilled out. I like, like smooth that. radio. Um, I would not want to hear a certain song. And I thought about this earlier today because I was listening to the radio and I was listening to Queen and I wouldn't want to hear Queen's I Want to Break Free. <laughs> <laughs> it's my thoughts would be, 
that it might actually invoke a rebellion amongst <laughs> some of the more confused patients on the ward and they might actually try to break free. Okay, well, I was um, thinking about this and uh, I uh, put something on uh, Twitter earlier today asking uh, people for suggestions as to what would be uh, Bad Hospital Radio songs. And I discovered there was already a hashtag that existed <laughs> called bad, hashtag Bad Hospital Radio songs. Um, and there's a, a list of uh, top 10, most of which were uh, better than uh, any answer that I could come up with myself. So I'll just go through the, the top 10 and you can tell me what you think of them. Um, in at number 10 was Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. Um, <laughs> at number 9 was the Fugees killing me softly. Uh, at number 8 was Bob Dylan knocking on heaven's door. Uh, seven, <laughs> 7 uh it was a bit more modern. We've got Ollie Murs Heart Skips a Beat. Oh nice. Um, uh, number 6 is the Bee Gees staying alive. Uh, number 5 we've got Bon Jovi Wanted Dead or Alive. Oh. <laughs> at number four I like this one Europe the final countdown <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, at number three we've got The Verve uh, The Drugs Don't Work probably <laughs> <laughs> true <laughs> cynic um, number two is Steps with Tragedy I'm just surprised that you put that at number two Mark knowing how much you enjoy that song. Well, this isn't, my, this isn't my personal list I had no control of the order of these I didn't vote either um, otherwise the order might be slightly different uh, and number one was Queen with another one by Sadust. oh there we go so Queen go. is not a good option for hospital radio that's right people. so uh, any more suggestions uh, I guess let us know using the same hashtag bad hospital radio songs and uh, we'll uh, we'll retweet the best ones that we like um, okay so Getting on to the, the, the clinical side of things that we're here to talk about today, we covered um, issues similar to this uh, when we did a show last year uh, about top tips for new junior doctors. And I think it's a good thing to discuss at this time of year for anybody listening who might have just qualified, but we're taking a slightly different slant uh, this time and we're focusing specifically on the elderly care wards out of hours. So between the three of us, we've been trying to think about common things that people get called to elderly wards for. Um, and an approach that you might take uh, and suggestions from us about how to deal with certain different things. So I think before we go into the, the specific uh, clinical questions and complaints, it's probably useful to think a, a bit about the general approach that you take, uh, in particular, um, how you uh, deal with uncertainty about things you're not sure about, um, asking for help from your seniors and um, admitting that you don't know, which is, I think, for a lot of us, quite hard. Um, I don't know if anybody has any thoughts about what you should do with those things, how you should tackle them. Well, I would say from, obviously, you haven't been in the, now being in the position of being the person who tends to get called if if things are difficult, that, you one, I never, never worry about people phoning me for help, and so you should never worry about asking your seniors for help. Um, uh, but what I would say is that, even if you haven't really got a got a clue what's going on, you're unable to pull out a diagnosis or know where to go from treatment, if you set things up for the person you're asking, so you do the obvious basic investigations and have them there so that when you're talking to the person you're asking advice for, you've got those results, it makes that person's job so much easier. And you've already provided them with probably enough information that they need to give you the advice you're looking for. So I think if particularly if they if they don't need if you don't need someone to come to them straight away, if you can get the basic blood tests or x-rays or ECGs, those types of basic information gathered so you can then present them to the person you're asking help for, that's really useful. I agree with Pete there because I think sometimes it's very hard to 
for us as a registrar to actually make decisions over the phone and that's often what you're having to do so the more information you have the better and you can form a picture in your head then of the patient and what's going on and you have a list of differentials running through your mind and anything that you do to facilitate us forming that list is going to be incredibly helpful I think in terms of approach, I think we have to say take the ABCD approach to every patient. I think that just should just be ingrained in everyone to start with. And often that's a really good way of, of assessing patients and not missing anything. But I think when you're thinking about the elderly population, there's other things you have to think about as well. Um, because they don't always present in a typical way. They can't always tell you exactly what's wrong with them. Um, and they can't always give you a history as clear as, as, as somebody might be able to on another ward, for example if they've got dementia or a delirium. Um, and so gather information, ask the nurses. Um, I think asking the nurses is invaluable. Ask the family members if they're there as well. And I think just gathering lots of information about why they're not right, why they're different, you know, why do the nurses think that who know them well? They've probably been on the ward for quite a while, possibly. Um, and just use your intuition and gather, gather information that way. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with all of that. Um, and when you're calling to ask for help, I think it's important to be explicit about um, what you're actually asking for. So have a clear idea in your mind about why you're making the phone call. And if it's because you don't you don't know what's going on or you don't know what to do next, that's absolutely fine. But I think it, it helps to say that. Um, uh, or it could be that you have an idea about what a diagnosis might be or an idea about how to do something, but you're not quite sure. Uh, and that's that's useful information to put in as well. And sometimes when people get to SHO level, they feel like they should be able to, to make these decisions. And sometimes that puts a lot of pressure on you um, to, to not ask and to, to think that you should be able to do this yourself. But I think just be aware of the fact as well that you don't always see this, but consultants ask other consultants for opinions all the time on their patients. Um, and ask for a second opinion and ask for advice. That's not something you always see. Um, you know, you might see the consultant on the registrar making a decision and you think that's something that's come solely from them, but it's not always the case. And I think no matter how far up the chain you go, it, there's always room to ask for advice, no matter, no matter how high you get up there. Uh, and if all else fails, Peter himself has said that he's very happy to have anybody asking questions. So we'll put his yeah. no- mobile number on the show notes. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> My email address is on the website. That is enough for people. <laughs> um, just don't expect an immediate response in an emergency. Yeah. Um, okay, should we talk about some specific presentations then, the ones that we think are fairly common to the uh, elderly wards? Um, and the first one that went on the list for me was uh, was delirium, uh, worsening confusion, particularly hyperactive delirium with uh, agitated patients. Um I mean, I assume that we've all been called several times as uh, house officers, uh, SHOs, whatever, to the wards to deal with these types of patients. Um, what are the first sort of steps that you would recommend people take? Well, I think taking the approach to any unwell patient, because I think appreciating that delirium does mean a patient is potentially quite unwell is important. And, and often people don't recognize that and particularly like, like you say the hyperactive deliriums but also the hyperactive deliriums as well um, associated with quite significant mortality um, so taking a serious approach to it is important if somebody says they're not quite right or they're more confused um, you often have to go hunting for reasons and like I say people can't always tell you what's wrong so you have to have a bit of a checklist in your head um, in terms of 
often what causes elderly patients to be more confused um, and then just go through them logically um, and have a think about what you might be looking for. So um, to be honest, it can be anything that tips an elderly patient into confusion. Um, so it's always worthwhile looking at a patient, um, looking for any signs of infection, um, looking to see if their bowels moving, if they're constipated, are they in pain? That's another significant thing that often gets missed. Um, have they fallen over? Have they banged their head? Is there anything there that potentially might mean something more serious? Um, and then other things you have to look at as well. So have a look at the medication chart. Is there anything new that started recently? Is there anything that could be making them more confused? Um, and ask the nurses whether anything's changed or whether they think anything might be contributing because that will always be quite helpful as well. So I'll just pick up on a couple of points that Vicky made there. Um, firstly, unfortunately, the nurses never phone up and say, I have a hyperactive delirium patient, um, which is because that would, if, as soon as you say that, you start to think about it in a medical context and you go through a bit of a list and head of, thought of things it could be. Actually, what you get phoned with is, this patient's out of control, come on, we need some help, or, you know, they're, as you say, they're not, they're not right today or something like that. Um, and it's important to go back to some sort of system like Vicky's talking about, something in your mind to, to make sure you, it's almost always, a, you know, it's a medical problem, so treat it like that and, and investigate it like that. With um, the pa- there will be patients who you've never met before and the nurses will call you and say, the family member saying that they're, they're not quite right, they're more confused than normal. And you go along and you think, well, how on earth, I've never met this patient before, how, how do I work out how significant this is? And I suppose I would say is when you're thinking about the causes of um, the, what's made them more confused or delirious, think about the things that, you, that can happen rapidly and you can change quickly. So things like urinary retention, that's dead easy to look for. You just ask the nurse that, you know, to do a bladder, you could do the bladder scan yourself, in fact. Um, but also think about the things that can present simply with a change in behaviour, but can actually risk the patient's life. So particularly um, an, an infection or something like that. So, you know, do do a set of blood tests to give you an idea of you. I'm sure this has all happened to us where you get a patient who's just a bit more confused and you take a set of bloods and they've got inflammatory markers that are in the roof. And you know that if you were to leave them in 12 hours time, they'd be febrile and have low blood pressure. So, um Although a lot of the time, because you don't know the patients, you might not be able to say for sure what's going on. Just make sure you do those basic investigations to make sure that things that are easy to treat or potentially life-threatening are are picked up quickly. Mm. I think just to add to that as well, I think um, we might touch on this, but sepsis doesn't always present typically in older patients, so they don't always get fever. They don't always get the obvious signs, the tachycardia, that sort of thing. And sometimes they can have an infection and be brewing it and present with a hypo or hyperactive delirium and not necessarily have all the normal markers that you see of infection. Yeah, I mean, that kind of leads on to uh, another point on the list, which is uh, early warning scores. Um, I think this is something, I mean, it's it's undoubtedly a, a really good initiative um, in, and incredibly useful in helping to spot deteriorating patients in general in medicine. Um, but... Uh, in an elderly population, it is not the be-all and end-all by any means. Uh, and it's just, as, as you say, Vicky, it's important to have an appreciation of, of the fact that people can be really sick and have normal or only very slightly abnormal early warning scores. And 
uh, not to be too reassured by that um, because of the way the physiology changes as people get older. Um, they don't always put their heart rate up. People become naturally beta blocked as they uh, as they get older, and um, people are more or can be more susceptible to uh, smaller swings and changes in uh, in blood pressure um, than than younger adults. And it makes it really difficult, and that's part of why I think we wanted to talk about being on call to the LVK Awards, because when you're trying to prioritise your jobs and you're getting phone calls about patients like this and they, you know, the, the, the nurses are worried about them but they haven't got a big change in their, mm. their early warning score, then prioritising where you see them is, is difficult. Um, and so I think what I would say is you may have sicker patients and that's fine, you should prioritise them, but make sure these patients, you get, you get to see them face-to-face at some point or you hand, it, hand them over so that someone does see them because um, just because their early warning score, as you say, is low, that doesn't mean that they don't need a, a face-to-face interaction with the doctor because you need to pick up on these more difficult signs. Um, the other thing I wanted to add to what's been said so far is the uh, the medications, and you rightly mentioned that you need to look at the cardex to see if anything new has been started. Um, but also the uh, the other thing to think about is things that they might be withdrawing from, uh, and. Uh, one that I've seen more than once is benzodiazepines. So people who've been on a nightly dose of temazepam for years and years and years and for whatever reason haven't got it because it hasn't been stocked or it hasn't been written up properly. Um, and that can, uh, that can really affect people. It's surprising, uh, I think, or very dramatic rather, uh, how um, badly people can be affected by, by these sorts of things. Yeah, and that's something that nobody ever really thinks about, I don't think, when, yeah. you're, when you're thinking about medications. It's what have they been taking that you know, suddenly has been stopped. Uh, and I'll throw an alcohol withdrawal in there as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, rightly or wrongly, stereotypes or what have you, I think it's, it's the sort of thing that um, you have to consciously think of because um, once you go into the LDK ward, for whatever reason, um, it comes low down on the list. If you go up to a gastroenterology ward, it's way up there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And you think, wow, this is bound to be alcohol related. But you go into the LDK ward, you just don't think about it for some reason. It's one of those things that you, you don't think about it until you see it in a, in a patient where you don't expect it. And then you're always a bit nervous, yeah. like, could they be withdrawing from alcohol? Yeah. That's a good point. Unless <laughs> shakes tell you otherwise. Tell you yeah. that they, yeah. in fact they are. <laughs> um, uh, it's not all our cupboard draw. I'm not advocating sort of um, chlorides epoxides <laughs> <laughs> as per CWA protocol for uh, all elderly patients who are confused. But um, um, but you're right, you, you hinted at it before. It's the request for sedation, isn't it, that uh, that tends to be the common one. You know, mm-hmm. can you come and help us because um, this uh, this person is confused, agitated, and uh, they're screaming, shouting, threatening to hit or hitting people tends to be the one where the nurses are very, very keen for you to give those people sedation. And you can completely understand where they're coming from if they're if they're worried that either staff members or other patients are at risk from physical harm. I mean that. That's that's why they they call a lot of the time. Mm. Um, suggestions? Well, usually the usually the elderly care wards are quite good at dealing with this. I have to give them credit for that, and they're used to it. And they're often quite good at de-escalating the situation, and, and which is obviously the first thing you should try and do. Um, and sometimes it can be a staffing issue, and it's worthwhile exploring whether they can get specials on the ward, special assistance for for sort of monitoring. Because um, I think you do have to make an assessment of whether they are going to be harm to themselves or others, or whether it's just the fact that um, they're kicking and screaming in the night and it's it's 
making the nursing staff a lot more busy and it's interfering with with what they should be doing and and there is a difference between the two things um and i think you just you have to make a, a bit of a kind of decision as to which one of those you think it's kind of falling into um because we do try and avoid to give sedation as much as possible um unless they're going to cause harm to themselves or others um and then I think then you have to think about what sort of sedation you're going to give, which is is variable really according to the patient and the situation. Yeah, I think that 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 almost that mantra of are they going to harm themselves or others if I don't do something about this actually is one that as a junior doctor gave me a bit of confidence mm-hmm. on both fronts to say no, I don't think we need to give this patient sedation, um, but also on the on the rare occasions that I had to, it sort of it it. Gave it. It was a just. It was a clear justification. But I think, as you say, make sure you think about the de-escalation measures, measures first. Mm-hmm. Make sure you approach, you identify and treat any reversible causes that you possibly can first, and then then that's that's the stage you're at. I mean, the really difficult ones, and and this these are the situations where you can call to help to ask for people who are more experienced. Are sometimes you feel that the only way to do the investigations to try and find out what's causing the problem is to give sedation in the first place. And those are the ones that are really difficult, but, you know, discuss it with the with your senior doctors and, and get some advice about that situation. And I think just make sure, you know, make sure you document everything clearly as well. So if you're giving somebody sedation, um, if you've documented why you're giving it and the fact that they, you know, it's in their best interests and they might lack capacity and, and you need it to do this or to stop them causing harm to themselves or others. I think as long as you've documented that quite clearly, it's 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 justified if you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, but you must document it if you're going to do that because um, it needs to be very clear that you're acting in the patient's best interests at the time. Yeah, and uh, along the same sort of lines, sort of segueing neatly into the uh, the next point on the list is uh, is pain management, um, because again, it's often a call that you get uh, to to come and prescribe some analgesia for somebody who's in pain, and uh, you know if you're busy and you've got lots of things to do, the temptation is often there to go into the ward, find the cardex, put put some paracetamol and codeine on the PRM bit, and then leave. Um, not saying I've ever done that, but uh, I can see that temptation would be there. Uh, and clearly, I think the the duty of care is to try and find out why it's being asked for, and make sure that it isn't anything uh, more serious. Yeah. Uh, I could tell you a bit of a horror story. Oh, go on then. It's it's brief. Okay. It last long, but it has stuck with me, and it's something that stayed with me all the way through. It's when I was an F one many years ago, many moons ago, and. Um, not that many years. <laughs> Vicky's actually 57. I'm <laughs> um, actually a geriatric Um And I, uh, I was reviewing a patient on my ward. Um, and they'd been in hospital for, I think, a couple of days already. And they were admitted with some left-sided um, abdominal pain. And they'd been investigated and they said, oh, it's probably musculoskeletal. And they've been written up for Oromorph and they've just been given Oromorph left, right and centre. And people had been called to see her overnight because she'd been unwell and they just prescribed more Oromorph and she just had a little bit more. And when I saw her the next day, and I was seeing her in the day, so appreciate with fresh eyes, but she just didn't look very well at all. And the crux of the story was she'd actually had a perforated peptic ulcer that had been missed 
on medical admissions because nobody had looked at her erectus x-ray. And because one person had done one thing and prescribed analgesia, everyone subsequent to that had just assumed it was the same thing without going back and reassessing. Um, and this lady, unfortunately, um, didn't do very well after that. Um, and it's just something that stuck with me all the way through is the fact that, um, you know, if there's a persisting problem, don't just do what everyone else has done before mm-hmm. you go back and reassess. Uh, I've, I've got one not too dissimilar to that. Um, but it involves fluids rather than uh, analgesia. Uh, and there was uh, an incident in one hospital where I worked, uh, not a patient of mine, but it quickly became uh, well known amongst the juniors that over a, a series of uh, three consecutive night shifts, this patient who was nil by mouth got fluids prescribed and um, they'd just been written up for whatever they'd had the, uh, in, the, in the previous shift. So successive shifts of junior doctors had essentially pre- prescribed uh, saline and dex- saline and dextrose alternate but with no potassium in it um, and uh, the patient unfortunately had a, a, a cardiac arrest secondary to hypokalemia and uh, the, the the moral of the story the learning point is much the same as you, yourself is just to think about what you're doing and not do it out of um, habits or routine or mm. just because somebody else has done it previously and make sure that everything is is considered really and remember that fluids are a medication you know, you're not just prescribing fluids, you're prescribing the medication, so you should consider it like anything else. And I think we should be, I think we should be handing over who you're, who's, not necessarily you'd have to hand over every patient who's on fluid, but if you're expecting a patient to be on fluids over the weekend, I think that should go into your handover so that you can tell the juniors what, what your plan is really for that fluid, how, you know, should we be giving them lots? Should we give them little? Have they need, you know, have they need potassium? Should they, are they eating anyway? And yeah, I think is it supplemental? Are they because, in their mouth? Are they poorly? And, because yeah. there's an awful lot of patients who will over, say, a weekend be expected to be maintained on, on fluid and, but they don't get handed over. And then as you say, you come to the ward and you tend to, you know, you might end up just copying what's done before. But I think it's worth thinking about for your, for your handovers. Um, fluids are your pet peeve, aren't they, Pete? They are. You're like, I ask if if I have patients who are kept on fluids over the weekend, I ask my genius to to hand them over and hand over a fluid plan for them, and um, and yeah, it does create a bit more work because often it involves actually going to see the, the mm-hmm. patient in person and and work out what's going on with their fluid balance. But it's uh, I've never had a, a true horror story like you, Mark, but I do think it's I've I've seen it done badly, so. Well, the the updated NICE guidance, um, not to get too geeky on anybody, but uh, the updated NICE guidance on fluids uh, says that anybody on IVT should be having their user needs done daily. And um, I think particularly over the weekend, I suspect that doesn't happen in an awful lot of people. And it would be a good audit audit project for people looking for something to audit. But uh, I think once you become mindful of these sorts of things, it tends to be something that you pay attention to. Um, yeah, and most hospitals have a phlebotomist now, so over the weekend as well. So it's uh, it's not adding much extra to the workload. Okay, so next on the list is uh, falls. So another common uh, a common bleep. Can you come and review this patient who's fallen? Um, it's one that I think it's worth talking about because uh, a lot of the time there won't be any uh, serious injury and it does become quite a repetitive call that you get. So again, in a, in a busy shift with lots of jobs to do, um, often what will end up happening is somebody will go to the ward and they'll just make sure that uh, uh, somebody 
isn't in too much pain, doesn't have any obvious evidence of superficial injuries, and doesn't isn't tender over the hips, and just document that in the notes, <laughs> and then and then go. Um, but uh, Vicky, there's more to it, isn't there? There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it. In fact, I gave a talk on this last Friday uh, to the new juniors starting at the hospital. Um, um, and Did you tell them to watch my mini gem that I made about this? I am telling them now. Podcast. <laughs> watch Pete's mini gem. It's very informative and, and very concise. Um, no, well worth a watch um, because it will give you um, a, a good approach to this. Um, I think most most hospitals have a falls pro forma actually, which will help guide you. Um, and certainly our hospital does at the moment. And I think often it's a ticky box thing. And yes, it is a checklist and yes, it's often audited, but it does give you a little bit of helping hands sometimes when you're actually thinking about um, falls. And I think ours is quite good. It gives you not only, um, you know, things to think about looking for in terms of injury and when to do CT heads, because that's often a common question. But it also kind of encourages you to think about the reasons they may have fallen over. So things like footwear and medication and why did they fall and did they have the buzzer and are they incontinent when they're trying to get to the toilet? So it's, it's got lots of useful information on it and a lot of the falls performers have that sort of thing on them. Um, and it just gets you thinking not only about seeing a patient who's fallen over, but about preventing further falls so you don't get called back to see the patient again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because... I think historically a lot of what we've been asked to do for these patients is quite reactive, uh, isn't it? Make sure that they haven't injured themselves and then uh, back to back to bed they go. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's as important, if not more so, to be proactive and uh, always ask the question why, um, which is a good mantra for a lot of what we do, really. Um, think about why people are presenting with those symptoms at that time. Pete, do you have anything to add? Well, I just say absolutely. If you are if you are reviewing your patients, think about why they fall. That's that's really that's excellent um, because you're absolutely right. I think the common the common things are to worry about. Well, maybe we we should just briefly. Go, I mean, if you are seeing these patients fall, the absolute things that you must not miss, uh, as we mentioned, head injuries, broken broken bones. Um, if they've lost consciousness, take that very seriously. In particular, consider um, if they've got arrhythmias or something like that. Um, and um, and as you say, try and address if, if this is if this is a repetitive thing. Try and do something about it. And I think also just think about um, you know we get we get calls about falls all the time, but think about the impact that it has on the patient. The patient's very vulnerable, and falls can knock confidence in a lot of people, and that can affect their mobility and affect their rehab. Um, and simply by you going to see them and reassuring them and 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 assessing them will probably make them feel a little bit better and a bit less isolated and I think that's it's really important to take these sorts of things seriously because a patient lying on a cold bathroom floor for even five minutes um you know that's going to take their confidence away hugely and even if you think it's very superficial and minor it's probably not to them it takes 10 seconds we talked a little bit earlier about Atypical presentations, I'd like to go back to that because I think there are more things that we could say about it. Again, there's a very good mini gem on the topic. In fact, there's mini gems about most of these things that we've talked <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. This is one big advert for mini gems, isn't it? <laughs> Look at the mini gems. Yeah, yeah. We can link to, we'll link to the, uh, the mini gems in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, and, uh, they're all, they're all worth a watch. Um, but thinking about atypical presentations, I mean, we mentioned the early warning scores and uh, Vicky, you hinted at your patient with uh, peritonitis who didn't mm. present typically, I think. Um, 
any, any other serious ones that you may have come across before that you want to share with people that it will be, it will be important to know about? Well, I've mentioned, I've mentioned it before and it's not, it's not something we immediately consider as a medical emergency, but urinary retention does present mm. in, in every way you can imagine it. It doesn't just present with abdominal pain or superpubic pain. In fact, it very rarely presents with that. It, they can be short of breath. They can be confused, agitated. Um, a huge different possible ways of presenting, um, and for, uh, very treatable and very common in patients, particularly when they're new to the hospital or new to the ward. It's very easy for you to do the bladder scan yourself. You can just pick it up on the ward and it doesn't take any training to do. Um, and it's so easily fixable and, and can save you and the patient awful lot of uncomfortable investigation. So, um, that would be the one that I always have in my head. Yeah. Uh, patients keep, if they keep asking to go to the loo or the bedpan or the commode mm. uh, over and over again, it's, uh, it's sometimes a warning of that as well. Um, Vicky, uh, atypical presentations. Yeah. So, um, a couple of times I think I've been caught out with, I mean, I think taking any patient, any elderly patient with abdominal pain, uh, uh, take them seriously. Um, obviously, take the younger patient seriously as well. But sometimes this can be a bit atypical. Um, and no elderly patient with abdominal pain, unless they're very constipated, should go without an abdominal X-ray, really. Um, but I'd also have a low threshold for thinking about things um, like um, ischemic colitis um, going on, especially if they're in AF or regular heartbeat. Um, and they can't always tell you exactly what's happening. And the other thing is, um, you know, patient with a bit of abdominal pain who's been on antibiotics suddenly has a massively raised white cell count, always having the back of your head, C. diff, um, been caught out a couple of times with that for patients who haven't necessarily developed the diarrhea yet. Um, but that will come. And I think you've just got to have that at the back of your mind because obviously that's got quite a high mortality associated with it as well. Yeah. Um, I think my suggestion would be uh, in patients who've fallen looking for, for hip fractures. Uh, and I've seen a, a number of patients who don't have the classical shortened externally rotated leg. And uh, I've seen patients actually with a remarkably good uh, range of movement uh, with relatively little pain around the hip, having had uh, a hip fracture. And equally, pelvic fractures are sometimes um, uh, quite easy to miss. And so my advice would be have quite a low threshold for organising any uh, imaging because it's just a plain x-ray of uh, pelvis and both hips and uh, it's very easy to do and it's one of the things that you don't really want to miss. Absolutely. Okay, then. now the um, last thing in the list uh, leading on from that is things not to miss. Um, we've probably talked about all of them in our conversation so far, but uh, what do you think are the, the key points to, to take away, the things you, you really don't want to miss? Um, I mean, for for me, um, urinary retention is a good one. We've just talked about that. Uh, the other thing I think is worth mentioning is uh, is bilirubinous because you see a lot of patients who um, have spiked a temperature, maybe a bit tachycardic, a bit tachypneic, and um, the management plan says sepsis, query source, query chest and urine, uh, and that just seems to come up time and time again, and and it doesn't really seem as though people are considering other causes causes of sepsis and um the the bilirubin tree is not an uncommon one uh, and probably is one that's uh that's worth considering so uh, um, make sure that the abdomen is properly examined and uh, look at the lfts uh, and think about an ultrasound in due course yeah they don't always get your classic triad yeah um yeah i think mine would be um 
uh, something very simple, actually. Um, so um, when you look and get a patient with diarrhea, and this is very, very common on an elderly care ward for a multitude of reasons, don't miss overflow diarrhea. Really simple, quite common, especially patients who've been bed bound and on lots of painkillers and, and strong opiates. Um, PR your patient. I know it's horrible when they've got diarrhea, but check are they impacted? Is this something you can solve quite easily um, rather than going down the wrong road and putting them in the side room, isolating them, sending off samples, um, you know, treating the wrong thing? Make sure you always PR your patient. Yeah, because it, it, it always comes out a couple of days down the line, doesn't it, that uh, the cause of the diarrhea was actually uh, overflow. And uh, if you've missed that and you've been giving them the paramide for a couple of days, then uh, you feel pretty silly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, as the old saying goes, if you don't put your finger in it, you put your foot in it. That's right. <laughs> I'm afraid. That was a good guess. <laughs> Have you never heard that before? No. Really? Not heard no. that before? No, oh, well. Thanks for pointing at me while you were <laughs> and we've all put our foot in it several times yeah um now i suppose that's the other thing to say isn't it that uh all, all of these things that that we're saying now this is the benefit of our experience yeah. um we're we're a bit conscious that uh, we might come across a little bit preachy and by no means are we perfect it's just that we've all been there and we've all done these mistakes yeah. and that's why uh we're here to tell you about them now so i've just got two to add actually um one going back to mark's point about hip fractures that you mentioned earlier about atypical presentations. Um, I guess my other point is uh, beware the unreported x-ray um, because if they, they've had a, an, they've had a fall or an injury and they're complaining of pain in the joint, quite often you'll have patients come through um, to your wards who will have had that joint x-rayed, uh, but it won't have been reported and it, it will it'll often be abnormal because of the underlying condition of their bones and their arthritis. Um, and it's, and you will see cases where fractures don't get picked up. Um, for several days until the radiographer is able to to get it, have a look at it. Um, so if you've got a suspicion that there there may be a fracture there and you can't clearly interpret the X-ray yourself, ask for help. Give the radiographer a quick call. It's a very quick X-ray for them to look at. Um, so that's one not to miss. My second one not to miss, which Vicky touched on earlier as well, was is hypoactive delirium. So the thing about hypoactive delirium is your it won't be tend to be brought to your attention as quickly because the patient won't be agitated. They won't, they won't take up as, as much of the staff's time. And, um, they're often picked up by being the patient that hasn't had anything to eat or drink for 24 hours. And you're asked to prescribe them fluids or, um, the patient who's been, been asleep for most of the day and the family have come in and said, well, they're not normally like this. Normally they'll sit up and chat to us. Um, but actually those patients with that type of delirium have all the, 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 the risks behind them that we talked about earlier about all the possible things from infection to, to, uh, urinary problems to all these different things that can cause them. So, um, don't miss it and take it as seriously as you would do the patient who's thrashing around the bed and mm. confused. Yeah. Very treatable as well, potentially. Mm. Um, so. Uh, and one that you are perhaps less likely to be called about because they're not the ones that are uh, that are causing a fuss on the wards. Okay, all good stuff. Um, I think uh, we should probably wrap it up now uh, with our Coticast commandments. So we usually have three. There are three of us. So uh, my maths is good enough to say that's one each. Uh, Vicky, would you like to go first? So mine would be um, the person who shouts the loudest isn't always the sickest, just from what Pete was just saying. Don't miss hypoactive delirium. It has a higher mortality than hypoactive, so don't miss it. Okay, Pete, what's yours? So my mine is um, 
take that uh, prescription of, of analgesia seriously and uh, just don't prescribe it without thinking, but think why is this person in pain and, um, and, you know, go and see the patient and try and do something about it. Um, because actually I think we're all guilty of this. And I thinking back, this is one that the one that, you know, everybody does is just puts the analgesia on without thinking about it. So that would be mine for today. Okay. And the final one for me is uh, to think like a toddler and always ask why. Um, you may not find out the answers, but it's important at least to uh, ask the question and start the ball rolling with any further investigations. And I think that's all we have time for. So I'll say thank you to uh, my guests, Peter Brock and Vicky Gibson. And uh, a final plea uh, for people, if uh, you've enjoyed what you've listened to, or even if you haven't enjoyed what you've listened to, <laughs> to fill out the survey and let us know at aeme.org.uk slash survey. And um, we'll uh, see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs>